Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it's my great pleasure to be joined today by Craig Hadley, Vice President of Finance and Administration and Treasurer at Hassan University. Welcome, Craig. Thanks, Megan. It's uh, my honor. We're going to jump right into the hard questions today, Craig, and I know that you're prepared for this, but can you tell us what issue you think will most impact the way colleges and universities conduct business in the next 10 years? Small question, I know, to start off with. but Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, pretty tough question and, and really broad, but I gave that some thought, and I think if it was me, I'd be looking at the in the context of the shrinking market that we have of our savvy customers, shoppers in the form of students and families, just understanding the student value proposition among their many choices and how our institutions, why, quote unquote, must adapt and integrate into this market and its trends and its demands, and then really trying to position the institution in all its aspects to what the market wants, be it our academic programs, our pricing, the grants we offer, student life, athletics, and campus infrastructure. So I think it's really important in my mind uh, as we look out into the landscape and just line up ourselves to our market and how do we actually understand what those people's needs are, our students and families. Craig, how do you think uh, current CBOs can best prepare or develop the next generation of higher education leadership, and particularly when you consider the growing desire to diversify the field? Well, we're here in Maine, and we're in central North Maine, and the labor market is challenging um, in finding really good talent. And as people may or may not know, Maine is not a very diverse state at all. Um, so it's pretty challenging to try to get good talent and um, and to diversify that talent. So what I think might be an idea for people to consider and something that I've done here initially by, <laughs> by need, really, um, is trying to develop an, what I call an internal feeder system, mm. quote-unquote. And really have a contact base of talent at the institution. So what do I mean? So what I mean is uh, we've been pretty proactive in um, developing a workforce of work-study students and graduate assistants in my scope of responsibilities. And those who in particular have internship experience outside the institution. So at Hassan, one of our uh, reasons for being, if you will, and our what we think is a, a bit of a niche for us is experiential learning. But we do a, a lot of internships, and so I, the 
student employees that we look to uh, hire and bolster into our, into our workforce, um, we really try to get uh, students who have some of that experience and um, and can be a little bit job ready when they come to work for us, so to speak. And so I think that and surveying and engaging recently graduated alumni who may desire a career change, I think is another area of opportunity. Uh, mm. It's been successful for me here. Um, so you know, I could give an example, but <laughs> I had a student employee who worked for me and then became a graduate assistant and then went off, didn't want, even when I tried to offer her a job, went off and went to a big hospital system and thought that was the place to be for the next 10, 20, 30 years and found out it wasn't really what she was hoping it was going to be. And uh, so she decided to give me a call and apply for positions here, and uh, and I hired him. She, she's a superstar. So it's just kind of one example, and I've got some other examples of similar GAs, graduate assistants who worked for me, um, you know, who, who are our resources. So I think hiring and developing their talents once they're here uh, as students or as graduate assistants or alumni who just come back on board, just hiring and developing their talents with mentoring, a lot of mentoring, cross-training in various functions, challenging them uh, to learn more than just sort of being in one box, and then encouraging them to participate in community events and obviously higher education seminars as well, whether it's on a regional or national basis. So I think uh, in a challenging labor market, generally, I get what's going on now, let alone here in Maine, let alone where we're located in Maine, uh, we've had to kind of come up with survival tactics, and uh, this has been one that's been helpful for us. Well, let's talk now not only to our CBO listeners, but also to any listeners who might be considering a CBO role as their next career move. What would you say are the top three skills or attributes, Craig, that are most crucial for CBOs in today's higher ed landscape? You know, in some ways, that may seem like an uh, an obvious answer to that question, and in some ways, it really isn't. So, um, you know, I kind of looking back on on it here as a CBO. Now, my I guess I'm ending my twelfth year, going to my thirteenth year. Um. And I've also learned this in other lives before higher ed. I mean, higher ed uh, is only one of the 11 employers that I've had, So, and my first not-for-profit. But I think what I've learned uh, before coming to Husson and at Husson in particular, in higher ed, when you have an uh, environment that is based on shared governance and consensus building, in a sense, Really, what's key in my mind, number one, is the, what I call the art of diplomacy and collaboration. So in a sense, I kind of I see a key role for myself as, uh, like on a national, international level, like a secretary of state, that you know, I really need to be proactive uh, and engaged in all areas of the institution, reaching out and understanding what their concerns and issues are. Um, and bringing to bear in those engagements really really good listening skills, having great empathy, which is absolutely critical in my mind, obviously having having good integrity and altruism to, to the mission, um, always keeping the mission in mind and serving students. You know, we may have a little infights here and there and uh, wanting resources here and there over somebody else, but ultimately 
how are we best serving students? So I think number one is what I would call the art of diplomacy and collaboration. And that, that takes some base skills to begin with and experience. Um, I think the other uh, key skill uh, is, is communicate in the area of communication. So I think it's really important, and I've learned the hard way, uh, to be able to take very complex issues, and I think we run into a lot of those as a CBO, um, and breaking them down into very simple concepts briefly so that kind of the person on the street can understand what we're trying to convey in the language that uh, they speak in rather than CBO speak. Um, so that would be the second area. And then the third would be, uh, in my mind, strategic and innovative thinking and breaking through what in many cases can be self-installed boundaries. So always trying to think of the possibilities, what are our best practices, how can we reach top quartile performance, and not settling necessarily for the status quo and being comfortable. So those are the three areas I'd point to, the art of diplomacy and collaboration, communication, synthesizing complex ideas into simple concepts, and then strategic and innovative thinking to move forward. Do you have any stories that stand out when you think about how you developed those skills over the course of your career so far? Uh, several years ago, I worked for a uh, uh, very large uh, water utility that uh, owned private water systems across the Northeast, publicly traded uh, company. And um, I was a CFO there for a couple of subsidiaries and um, got a little bored with that. <laughs> <laughs> decided to uh, put my name in the hat for a new initiative that uh, came forward. Uh, it was what they called ultimately the Customer Service Initiative, um, CSI. And uh, um, I didn't really know what I was getting into until I got into it. <laughs> but, but boy, uh, it, it, I, it, all my technical skills and learning had to go out the door um, because this was a a study that was commissioned by the company, uh, this was Consumers Water Company at the time, based out of Portland, Maine. Uh, they commissioned a study from by Duke Power, um, and the study uh, was to look at how we could re-engineer our customer service processes, the goal being to be more competitive, because it is a competitive environment uh, in the water business, believe it or not, to streamline our costs, and most importantly, to improve customer satisfaction. Now, that may seem a little silly in terms of, of what is probably the last remaining, it really is the last remaining pure monopoly of water utility. Um, but keep in mind, eminent domain, uh, they can be taken over um, by towns who are not satisfied. And when you go before the Public Utilities Commission and you ask for wonderful large rate increases uh, to support new infrastructure investments, um, and the public advocate comes out and everybody comes out of the wall to argue against it, you really got to make sure you have a good basis of, of, of quality service and as best as possible, customer service satisfaction, so you get those rate increases without too much trouble. Um, so that was really the, the, uh, the idea of uh, what the company was trying to do. And so I changed a lot of my job duty and um, went into that. And it had to do with job change, a lot of job change in terms of duties, job eliminations, and new technology. 
Uh, and this was an initiative across six states, um, over 18 service centers. Um, and I, had a be I became the project leader of seven teams uh, made up of stakeholders across that area um, to put a multitude of goals and initiatives uh, into play from this, this study that Duke Power had done for the, for the company. Um, and so when I began to get into it, um, I began to realize that I had fallen into a big, big, big rabbit hole because it dealt, it required a lot of skills that I didn't have or hadn't honed at all and didn't need to in, in my role as CFO. Um, so I got trained immediately in public speaking. Um, wow. and I took some, yeah, I took uh, a week long intense session on public speaking because a lot of what I had to do was go out in, in a sense, go out and do town hall meetings, uh, through the, these 18 service centers, six states, working with the seven teams and team leaders and explain the study, its goals, its impacts. Uh, how they could get involved as stakeholders, listen to their concerns, listen to their ideas, um, help them be part of the solution rather than be the problem, and eventually try to get over the fear of change, um, particularly with a job change. Because um, you know, for most people, the first thing that comes to mind is, I'm losing my job. Um, and uh, so it was quite daunting, quite honestly. And thank gosh, I was uh, coached by uh, the Duke Power um, Folks, uh, they gave us a consultant for a, a while, about a year, who worked with me in putting forth the implementation of all these goals. And uh, so I got a little coaching from him, and public speaking was helpful. But then I was going off and just doing it on my own, stubbing my toes and, and learning um, trial by error. So I traveled all around the states to the variety of sites trying to explain this initiative uh, and its goals. Um, <clears throat> and how the stakeholders that were being impacted were represented by their teams and how uh, their in input and concerns and fears could be addressed by going through those teams and just listening to them. And what was great is uh, it was so rewarding because, in effect, I became an insider. So rather, rather than an outsider who was going to be implanting these initiatives from corporate down onto the field offices, I became one with them and actually became an advocate uh, uh, for them at the corporate level, and the corporate level is an advocate for the cor corporate level down to the field. So it was, it was kind of a good feeling, but I, I had to learn the art of diplomacy and primarily by listening to the people, empathizing with the impacted people, and again, discussing the con uh, their concerns and initiative. I had to sit down with each state's president because each state had a president that oversaw these service centers. So six different presidents, CEOs, and explain to them what was going on, what we we're trying to accomplish, uh, even though they were part of an overall corporate leadership team, and get their buy-in on how their team and their state uh, could push forward these goals and um, how we were listening to their stakeholders and his, his or her concerns as a CEO and uh, work with them on how to best move these goals forward with their particular uh, state centers and with their state team. And so it became very political um, because it was impacting, you know, their, in my words, their fiefdoms. But again, by engaging and listening and empathizing and then going back to corporate leadership and trying to uh, politic for what a CEO or uh, states stakeholders were concerned about and just bridging the gap of understanding and communication was key. 
Um, and then, and then uh, I had to hone skills, uh, presentation skills. I had to make presentations like, I don't know, bi-monthly uh, or quarterly to the Senior Leadership Council on this initiative. Um, explain to them what was being accomplished, the things we were hearing, our progress we were making, uh, so forth and so forth, and boiling a lot of that down uh, where I could uh, into more simple concepts and getting the, the progress um, across to them. And that, I, I wasn't great at the beginning, but you know, after I got to do more and more and more of it, both in the field and at the corporate level, making presentations, it got a lot easier. And it got a lot easier because I lived the initiative. I mean, I was it. And so it was second, second nature. So if you get to that point where you, you kind of ingrain uh, yourself into what's going on, become an ingredient, and as opposed to uh, somebody who may be an op- seen as op- uh, opposition, it really makes it a lot easier. Uh, and um, explaining what's going on makes it a lot easier because it comes from your heart mm-hmm. as well as your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, became, it was very successful. It was incredible. Uh, over two years, we, we went through this, and uh, it was very rewarding. Uh, we had very engaged employees across the institution, that company. Um, we streamlined the work processes that we were looking to do. We enhanced the customer billing and the bills that we issued out. We improved the technology. We actually improved customer satisfaction. We implemented automated systems to send out surveys to track customer satisfaction, and that customer satisfaction was improving as we tracked it. And we reduced costs by $600,000 annually. So it was a big win, um, and it was very rewarding, but it took a lot, a lot of work mm, and a lot of uh, soul-searching uh, you know, to, to, to make it happen. But that, that really positioned me uh, for these kinds of skills that we are talking about um, uh, earlier. Thank you so much for that fantastic example, Craig. All right, now the most fun question of the show. Thinking back on your time as a CBO, can you tell us what you consider to be your most fabulous failure and what you learned from it? And I know a lot of people don't like to think of these things as failures, so just take that with a grain of salt. Tell us something that you learned the hard way, potentially. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I gave this some real thought. I had to tell you. <laughs> That's my, great. Let's see. Did I really fail? What did I fail? I don't well, think I Well, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not <laughs> a failure. It's a learning. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, you know what? Yeah, I had some, I had some bad boo-boo. So let me, uh, let me, okay. I came up with one. Great. So here at, here at Hudson, I, I made a b- big boo-boo and it was early in my career. And it, again, again, it had to do with really not remembering the key skills that we were talking about earlier and, and putting them into play. So um, we were looking at, I had not considered uh, the institution's historic banking relationship and had not clarified um, our lead bank's position on paydowns in a long-term debt facility, which had a revolving nature to it. I had assumed that any unscheduled paydowns that I would make with excess cash um, from the seasonality of getting tuition in uh, that would help us then reduce interest costs. I had assumed that they would it would be a permanent paydown and not be able to be drawn back. So I didn't do it. Uh, and then, as I was questioned by our trustees, I was remanded for why not why I did not pursue a strategy of paying off that debt at least on an interim basis without our excess, excess cash and save interest. Um, you know, we all wanted to save money. They had full. The trustees had full confidence in the lender, who was our lead bank, um, and, and that they would advance back the money. So, what was my problem? And I had to, you know, quite honestly, in my background, I've worked for some uh, companies that uh, were in trouble. So, I never had a really great 
trust level with banks. <laughs> and so um, my concern was the bank facility was silent on how it would treat unscheduled paydowns. So I assumed and did not take into consideration um, the trustee's confidence in our bank and that it was our primary bank. Um, I assumed that, you know, the worst, that if I paid the money down, it wouldn't come back. And we needed to come back, even though it would save interest in the meanwhile. So I decided, okay, I, I need to learn from that. And I reached out to the bank and I said, you know what? It is unclear what will happen if I pay down this line, even though it's a revolving nature, um, with an unscheduled pay down, whether I can get that back. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we'll let you get that back. I said, great. Will you please put that in writing? Because it's nowhere in writing in our debt documents. Uh, sure, let me look into that. So, <laughs> so a few weeks later, they ultimately did write a letter uh, and, and confirmed that uh, that's how they would treat it. And I looked, looked to that and went back to the trustee and said, okay, so I've got, it's clear now that we can do that and we should trust the bank and I should have trusted them, but at least I can have it in writing now because it wasn't clear before. And let's go pay down the debt and save some interest. So my lesson learned there was, you know, know your audience, know your trustees, know your <laughs> historical relationships and assume nothing. Go check it out and then, then take a position. So that was a fabulous failure. I love it. Thank you so much for that fantastic example, Craig. And thank you for sharing just a little bit of your insights and experience with our listeners today. It was great chatting with you. Oh, it was great. Love it. You can find out more about Craig in today's episode by visiting the education section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Craig and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. Thank you.